During my first year of college, my roommate and I got along pretty well. Um, not always, as roommates don't always get along. Uh, we had our little differences from time to time. And I remember his family would come in. They lived close at hand. Mine lived very far away. So mine really wasn't able to come up much. But um, his was within a couple hours. They'd come down. I remember them bringing a piece of furniture to put in the room. There wasn't a lot of room, but we had a chair uh, and I think even like a love seat. I mean, we, we really packed out the room. I remember them bringing in the chair and it wasn't just, you know, roommate and parents, but it was extended family. There was an aunt and an uncle there, siblings, I think a grandparent or two. I don't know. It was a lot of people in one space and they, they had the gift of arguing in their family, but it was like playful bantering, but it kind of moved a little beyond. And uh, I remember them bringing the furniture in and setting it in the corner the only obvious place it could fit in the room, and yet they all had an opinion on a different place that it could fit in the room, and they wanted to argue about it. And, and I remember there were just oddities like that that, uh, from my perspective, I was like, well, this is really annoying, and we would annoy each other like that. But I remember one day, because sometimes I would annoy him. I know you'd find it hard to believe that I could do that, but um, I remember... I'm not the most organized person, especially with paper. That, that is one of the things I just have the worst time organizing. So I make lots of stacks, and I know where they are in my stacks of paper. So I decided one day I would be a good roommate and clean. Well, I had stuff everywhere in the room, and it looked worse than when I started as I was cleaning it. And he walks in, and he was much cleaner than I was. This was an odd couple relationship in some ways. And he just was unhappy with everything. And I tried to explain to him that sometimes in the process of cleaning things, it has to get a little messier first, which I believe is the case because we were cleaning around our house this weekend. And that's the case. It gets a little messier in the process as you try and clean things up. I can't speak uh, to how God is cleaning up the problem of sin in the world. I don't know if it's getting messier or not, but I can tell you this, God's cleaning it up. I can tell you this, God is trying to make order out of the chaos that we live in in this world still. God is trying to give us light over darkness. Isn't that a good thing? There's the good news right away as we start the sermon today that God is trying to put things together. And in the process of that, even now, we can, in, we can get a foretaste of fulfillment that God is going to give us. We can see that through Jesus Christ, we're going to receive wholeness where there's brokenness now and justice where things seem off and wrong. That's the good news right away. That's what we see through Jesus Christ. And we're, we're given peace, which is what we're looking at today as we look at Isaiah 11. And I'd encourage you to find it. Let's look at Isaiah 11 uh, and we're going to read 1 through 10. See, we're given God's best. That's the promise that we're offered here. And we're given an entrance ramp onto it right here in the passage too. We're given the way forward here. It's not just written to people long ago, but we can enter into the same story. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions to the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. That's power. 
Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And then we get this picture of peace here. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. A lot happens in those 10 verses. We're not going to cover it all, but I want to give you uh, a thought today looking at an object in the passage our concept, excuse me, first, an object and then a person as we look at this. And, and first we see a concept which doesn't really get named, but as the readers in the ancient world would have recognized, it's there clearly, and that is shalom, peace. That's what's being picked out here. That's what's being portrayed to us. And, and, and shalom as peace goes well beyond simply peace. Nathan Stone, who wrote a very good book on the names of God, some of you have read it, he writes of shalom, especially when we're introduced to Jehovah Shalom in Judges. He says, It is a harmony of relationship or reconciliation based upon the completion of a transaction, a payment of a debt, or the giving of satisfaction. So something that was broken or needed to be repaired or fixed or paid off somehow has been done. It's fixing that. And it's relational. It's a relationship issue in many cases. It's used, uh, this word shalom is used in the Old Testament 170 times, uh, representing, as again Nathan Stone says, the greatest contentment and satisfaction in life. So this is something we want. This is something we should desire. Those things that are broken, that, that need fixing, are put together. And this promise is given here in Isaiah 11. And last week we got into a little bit of history. No need to get deep into it this week other than to say last week they were living in great fear of the threat of Assyria, the superpower. By Isaiah 11, that fear has backed off a little bit. They can breathe a little bit, but it's not totally released. You can see throughout Isaiah. And, And just a couple chapters before, you can see that God in chapter 5 has prophesied through Isaiah. In verses 1 and 2, they'll come up on the screen. You don't need to flip or thumb there. But we have this picture of Jerusalem particularly, but of uh, Judah as a people who are unfaithful. Yet they had everything they needed to follow, to be obedient to God. And yet they weren't. So it reads this, and they're portrayed as a vineyard. It says, I will sing a song for the one I love, or I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Perfect place. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. Everything was made right. Good fertile soil, good place. He built a watchtower in it, secure. He cut a wine press as well. They can be productive and use it. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. God says, I've set it up all right for you to be obedient, and yet you're not. The people that he's chosen to deliver his news to the world, his good news to the world, to show everybody who he is, 
And yet, the conditions are right, but the fruit is bad. And not just that, they're not living in peace, in shalom at all. And in all places, it's Jerusalem, the city of peace. My loved one had a vineyard. It's anything but peaceful. And so we get this contrasting portrait in this world that is anything but peaceful of peace in Isaiah 11. And what does peace look like? It starts with judgment. And it starts with judgment from somebody who actually has the ability to judge, right, rightly to judge. A righteous judge, unswayed, absolutely correct in how they're going to do it. They're not going to be carrying baggage. They're not going to be making decisions based on other decisions they've made. They're going to be making the right decisions. Judgment is where it starts, and it brings in justice, putting things to right. And, and when we bring that in into shalom, and that concept of shalom, shalom isn't just the absence of that which is bad. Shalom is the best good, right? Shalom is as things should be, great, whole, as God intended. And so judgment's going to come to take away that which, that which is wrong, to put that which is right in place, to justify things. And reconciliation is what follows then. That's what comes with this. And so you see this great portrait there of the lion, the wolf living with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, right? The calf, the lion, the yearling, the cows feeding with the bear, the lions eating straw, and Democrat and Republican are eating together, right? That's what's going on here. It's peaceful. That's shalom. Highest good. Second, we have this object. This banner in verse 10 is brought out. And a banner is simply like a thing on a pole, like a flag. Sometimes in the ancient world, it could just be a pole itself was the banner. It could be referred to that way. And what you see, it's, it's like if you go to Disney World or something like that, and everybody's wearing the same color shirt, you know, tour group, and then it names it, and somebody's walking with a flag out in front. That's a banner. That's all it's doing, rallying the troops together, gathering us all under one heading. That's the banner. And again, Nathan Stone, he points out that uh, a banner can stand as a symbol, of course, but it can also be a pledge of what God will do. And that's what we see here. It's a pledge of what God will do. And you can again see contrasting pictures, even just this far into Isaiah, of how Isaiah, uh, speaking God's word, has given a banner that was a pledge, but not exactly what Judah wanted. And then in chapter 11, it'll be a a positive thing. But back in chapter 5, verses 25 and 26, again, it'll be on the screen. God has talked about his vineyard. We've been told about the vineyard should have been right, but now they're going to face the consequences of turning away from God. The warnings have come. They haven't heeded those warnings. Verse 25 of chapter 5, it says, Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the street. It's not a pretty picture. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the end of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. Banner's a bad thing here. It's bringing all the nations and they're going to endure the consequences of turning away from God and not heeding the warning. That's what's going on in chapter 5. But then here you have a positive, a contrasting picture. No, here's the promise. Here's the banner you want to look to. Follow this one. Go this way in verse 10 of chapter 11. It says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. 
The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. That's where you want to go. That's peace the banner is calling you to. And Isaiah picks up this imagery throughout his text of walking the highway of the Lord, right? And that's the banner is going to lead you in that way to walk with God towards the banner to the pledge of shalom that we're given of peace, wholeness, reconciliation, the highest good that God has. So we've got the concept of shalom. We've got the object, the banner that's leading us in towards that shalom that God has for his people. And then you have Jesse, the person that we're bringing in. And it's so fascinating that it's Jesse, the humble father of King David. If you look back at Isaiah 1.1, which will pop up here on the screen, it points out uh, a few kings that Judah was presenting this, or Isaiah was presenting this in the days of Judah. And uh, it was during the reigns of the kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Three out of four of those were good kings. Those guys are in the line of David. Jesse's the father of David. So if you look at the family tree, you see that we have Jesse, who was not a king, and David, who was the smallest of the bunch, that becomes uh, King David within uh, the unified monarchy of Israel. And then you have Solomon, who's his son. Skip a few. Then you have Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. But what's it's so curious that it doesn't say from the root of King David, isn't it? The guy that everybody was looking towards, the guy that, as we heard in Isaiah 55, God said, I set up a covenant like with David or with David, that I was going to fulfill this through his line. But yet it points all the way back to Jesse. It's a fascinating thing. It'll come out of the stump of Jesse, not David. Why? Not abundantly clear in the text. Scholars kind of have all kinds of different reasoning. But it strikes me as I've, I've looked into this this week, that what you have here is almost like a parallel universe, if you will. That you have, yeah, King David was good, a man after God's own heart. Those that came after him, just slightly less good, each one. Most of those guys were on the righteous king category, except for Ahaz. But the one who's going to come, the anointed one who's going to be anointed out of that same line, following, fulfilling the covenant promise, he's going to be better than David could ever hope to be. You get a prototype, an imperfect prototype, but here comes the real thing. Out of the same root of Jesse, faithfulness and righteousness. And God is faithful to bring that king, that Messiah, the king, out of that family line. And we look at this, we see shalom, what God is promising us, the way forward to follow the banner on the highway of the Lord. And that leads to the king, the one who's going to come, the one that's promised. As I, I challenged you last week, uh, an important thing in this season is to make sure that we connect with the deep story. We read these Old Testament texts. It's easy to kind of let them be Old Testament texts, but we're being actually called into this story. This is pointing to something that happened with the Messiah Jesus, and we're called into that very same story. Just as Isaiah is calling Judah, he's calling us. There are a couple dangers, though, on the highway of the Lord of detours that we can accidentally and inadvertently take. Uh, one I just flagged for you is that this could not be so prophetic, right? Some people will look at this and they'll say, well, this is a historical text. This is wonderful. Some scholars will look at this and they'll say the, the little child that's going to lead them, 
This chapter is very similar to chapter 9, by the way, which we sang about this morning. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, right? That's chapter 9. People will look at that and they'll say, well, that's probably King Hezekiah it was talking about because he was going to do some good stuff. Or they'll say, if it was Jesus, then this was a later edition that was added later on to kind of point forward, but not really because it was added later. And we'll kind of take the text and we'll kind of strip it away of its power and demythologize it and all these other things that we could do to it so that it becomes just a historical text of a historical moment. That's a detour we can take we ought not take. That, I'm going to guess, is probably not the major detour that we would run into uh, as brothers and sisters. My suggestion is we have another danger as we look at a text like this. The highway of the Lord leading to peace to the king who would come. But it's easy to actually cut out the kingdom of God out of the picture, ultimately. It's easy to still make it a historical moment, but then to say, you know what, God, you set up everything, and now we can take over from here. Right? We can, we can come to peace. We can do a lot of things together. I see a lot of Facebook videos that pop up that are very good about good things people are doing in the world. And sometimes we get convinced that we could actually do all this good in the world and conquer all the ills and the problems that are out there in the world. And you know what? For all the good that we can do, we can't conquer them all. We can't. Self keeps getting in the way. And it's easy then to live in the kingdom of now And to make what we get in scripture just sort of a moral guide and a good thing. And God set everything up like the vineyard and then step back and we're good to go on our own. We can fix the rest of it, God. Thank you very much. I'll give you an example of something I read this week. It's it's an article that comes up every year uh, during Advent when I search around for good resources. uh, Written by a pastor. um, And he says, talking about the good that we can do. He says, in every community, talking about Isaiah 11, by the way, in every community, people of goodwill, Muslims, Jews, Christians, are reaching across the enormous chasm of tragic history to find common ground. Jews and Christians, Jews and Muslims, Muslims and Christians are talking to one another more intentionally than at any time recently. In every community, people of goodwill are working for the cessation of violence in the streets by attacking the root causes. In every church, synagogue, and mosque, people of goodwill discuss systemic injustice and combine forces to oppose it. Now listen to this. Small, almost invisible, green shoots. Do you see what he did? All of that's good. We should work against systemic injustice. We should work for good. We have that God-given capacity. We actually have the mandate. We should work for good, towards shalom. But, do you see what he did at the end? He replaced... We're the, inv- we're the little green shoots coming out of the stump of Jesse. And we can easily convince ourselves that we can do it all. We can achieve what's written in the text, peace. I don't want to be uh, demotivational, but we can't. I, I, I don't know about you. Uh, no earthly government I've seen or studied No king, no dictator, no military, no politician, no person of the year, no pastor, no teacher, no prophet can deliver what's written in Isaiah 11. None of them can. None of them. I I don't know if you noticed this. We just had a presidential election, and it took forever to get to election day, didn't it? It seemed like it went on for a long time. I didn't, nor have I ever heard a politician promise to me as a campaign pledge 
that they could bring world peace like this, nor have I heard a politician ever say, I'm going to make, uh, make world peace and I'm going to create peace between humans and the natural world so that your child can have a pet cobra like I have a pet dog. Right? Nobody's making that claim because they can't. The child's going to play by the cobra's den and there's not going to be enmity between them. They're going to be in peace. We can't promise because we can't deliver, but we can fool ourselves into thinking that we can bring and deliver more than we can. No, only one can. The Messiah, the King, the Redeemer and Savior of you and me, who's written about here. It's the one who comes who's righteous and just, and we're called to delight in the fear of the Lord, just like he does. To reverence God appropriately and understand the power that God has in the promise that God delivers through Jesus, the Messiah. Here's the good news. We started with it. Let's end with it before we go to the table. The good news is that the banner of the Lord brings peace. Moses in the Old Testament has this moment where he's walking with the people after the exodus in the desert. Uh, They've been less than faithful. They're causing problems again. Snakes come into the picture and start biting them in their unfaithfulness. But they're given a way out. Moses lifts up a banner with an image of a snake on it. And if they look to the snake, they'll be saved. They'll be cured of the poison. All they have to do is look. Just be obedient in that way, in their disobedience. Sometimes we don't do what's best for us in this life. We have the choice, we don't. I remember in 10th grade biology class, uh, I was, we were given pretests. I had a bad attitude back then for some reason. We were given pretests. It turns out it was just the same test we were going to get in a week. Multiple choice, same question. The multiple choices were just flipped around. So if you did the pretest, you could do the test coming up in five minutes, right? Because you already had done it. Open book prior to that. He knew he was doing this. And yet, people were failing. People were getting Fs. They knew that was the case. They were still getting Fs. All they had to do was do the pretest. You'd get the test ready. Now, I almost succumbed as well, but my dad did not let me. I'm thankful for that. I told you I had a bad attitude. Um, same thing can happen here. Still, people didn't look at the snake. They didn't follow the instruction. And what's interesting is Jesus picks up on the exact same imagery in John 3, verses 14 and 15. It's right before the football passage. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? That everyone who believes may have eternal life. And still some of us don't look and respond. And we're given the banner of the Lord, bringing peace bringing peace like we can't deliver and we can't imagine. But we can begin to taste now when we say yes to the one who is just and righteous and faithful. The one delivered, Jesus Christ. We're called to walk the highway of the Lord, to look to the banner, to delight in the fear of the Lord, to recognize God's power and authority and to submit to that very same power and authority. That's how we enter into the deeper story that Isaiah is bringing us into. We're called to that exact same thing, to submit to Jesus Christ, to say yes. That's what we're going to celebrate at the table this morning. 
And so as we move to that, let's, let's pray together and then let's join in together at the table. Father, we thank you that you sent us a banner. Don't let us fail in the process. Fail to heed, fail to reverence you, fail to delight, not just fear, but delight in the fear of the Lord, to recognize all that you've done and the pledge that you've given through Jesus Christ and the promise that we can even partake of now. Even now we can have fulfillment through your Son. As you bring things to a conclusion in this world, and as your kingdom is rolling in, God, even though we face injustice and evil, and we certainly fight against those as we're called to, but we look to you as the one who will ultimately solve all of those, not us. God, help us as we partner with you in this. Help us as we call you Lord and live under your authority, not our own. Help us each day to make decisions that show and reveal in our lives that you have that authority and that power and that we fear you and you alone. God, thank you for the promises you give us and the good news that you delivered through your son, Jesus Christ. May we not ignore that, but fully embrace that. We pray this in your name. Amen.